When the spirit dies, but the dead live, the dark god of the night is a beast. <laughs> One, Jonathan Harker's journal, kept in shorthand. Third of May, Bistritz. Left Munich at 8.35 p.m. on 1st May, arriving at Vienna early next morning. Should have arrived at 6.46, but train was an hour late. Budapest seems a wonderful place from the glimpse which I got of it from the train and the little I could walk through the streets. I feared to go very far from the station, as we'd arrived late and would start as near the correct time as possible. The impression I had was that we were leaving the west and entering the east. The most western of splendid bridges over the Danube, which is here of noble width and depth, took us among the traditions of Turkish rule. We left in pretty good time, and came after nightfall to Klossenburg. Here I stopped for the night at the Hotel Royale. I had for dinner, or rather supper, a chicken done up some way with red pepper, which was very good but thirsty. I was really going to just keep going until you cut me off. Um, that's the first page of Dracula, by the way. I was going to just keep going and see how long it took for Devin to be like, what are you doing? But... Um, then it kept going and I got, I, I started getting self-conscious about it being bad podcasting. So now everyone's heard the first page of Dracula. <laughs> because at first I was like, oh, and then Amber will be like, and I ordered a floppy wiener, but you kept going. And I was like, is Amber, <laughs> going. is Amber like <laughs> auditioning to do audiobooks? Like, is that? Support us on Patreon to get the chapter by chapter breakdown of Dracula by Bram Stoker. <laughs> Amber, what's the podcast? That's a great question. So this is a podcast in which we read out a classic uh, gothic horror novel every week. Um, and uh, in between doing that, sometimes we'll do a special bonus episode where we take it a, some sort of a, a franchise or intellectual property and we'll make a character in that property. Um, although sometimes on a special, special episode, um, Devin and I will on original podcast Do Not Steal instead do a How We Do episode which is like an episode where we take some sort of a property and we say how we would do an iteration of that property. So we've done before, like, how we would do a Greek myth, how we would do an episode of this show or that show. Um, and uh, today, I believe we are doing how we would do a continuity-ruining spinoff of a different podcast which does an alternative version of the Dark Universe. There's another podcast called Are You Afraid of the Dark Universe, Friend of the Show, and they do, their entire podcast is exploring an alternative pitch of what the Dark Universe, that's the Universal Studios monster movies, how they would do it, and we're doing an alternative continuity ruining spin-off show of that universe. That's what we're doing here. So Devin was very clear that it needs to be continuity ruining. I More continuity wonky than ruining, but... Like, I just... Okay, so... Hey, Dalton. Devin was like, if this doesn't if this doesn't invalidate Dalton and Dalton's show, I don't want to do it. That is We're exactly, here to ruin them. That is exactly what I said off air. Ah, <laughs> uh, composure. He was like, I don't even want them in fucking business after this episode is out. Yeah, we're gonna put... Man, they just did their episode where they made their own competition with a sequel to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Motherfucker, we the ops. We running you out of town. <laughs> but anyways, 
Calm, composure collected. Hey, Dalton. Hey, Dylan. Due to me misreading things and scheduling conflicts, we couldn't have the thing we wanted to do, and now you've become far too big to notice us lonely, stupid podcasters. And much like every crush I ever had in high school, I didn't read the room, and I'm now going to do a grand display to attempt to woo you and win your affections. God so- damn it. <laughs> Oh, they're going to listen to this, huh? They're, oh, they're going to listen to this. I actually have to be on my best behavior here. I have to fucking behave. <laughs> I don't... I, I don't know. Did anyone stick around past you just reading the first page of fucking Dracula? But anyways, we're going to be doing a one-season spit-off, odd continuity show that relates to y'all's dark universe because things like Highlander the Raven or Reaper... Or I had another one, but I lost Spider-Man Unlimited. I love it when there's just weird. It's supposed to connect and line up and sync one to one and it doesn't. And I spent some time off air explaining very roughly how their dark universe looks and feels. I didn't think me (laughs) reciting first draft pitches would make for good podcasting particularly because we might just ignore all of it and do whatever we want we'll get to more of that later but that's what this episode's gonna be amber i think you've said your whole piece do you want me to kind of get into how this episode works and just get started i mean like you don't have to do quite as in-depth of a description as you gave me but i think it might be helpful to give a little bit of a summary of what the their version of the universe is Okay, cool. So, Like, you don't need to go, like, every movie, but a little bit. Yeah, so Dalton and Dylan, they do, they were actually hired by a yet-to-be-revealed producer over at Universal to reboot the Dark Universe, full-on Avengers-style interconnected continuity to potentially go on forever at nauseum. They have to start with the mummy and keep all of the casting and move forward. So Javier Bardem reprises his role as Frank. Sorry, I burped as God damn it. I burped again as Frankenstein. Uh, Nick Morton returns by Tom Cruise, so on and so forth. And it deals with it's very uh, heavily political, Dylan is very didactic with his storytelling, so his politics and philosophy come out in both his uh, werewolf movie and his Jekyll and Hyde X movie, and Dylan is very horror-focused, so there's a period piece, like, just really dark, really grim, really interesting take on Frankenstein that makes the monster and the doctor one end of the same Ah, ba 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 ba. Is there anything else I'm forgetting? Because that Frankenstein pitch really sold me what's been. Oh, there's this like wonderful uh, cyclical nature of interfamily trauma thing that happens because Dr. Frankenstein, like the person, was, I don't want to say abusive, but and neglectful towards his daughter's approach to like the natural philosophy, science, what they called science back then. And so when. Frankenstein the father dies his daughter brings him back as the monster and so too does she reject him this thing that he's created kind of her son dad so you know I love it when a monster has some mommy issues isn't that just fun for everyone and also Dalton and I feel like I've been getting their names wrong which is probably just gonna uh you know I'm gonna keep getting them crossed because they're a little familiar but Dalton likes to challenge themselves because I'm pretty positive they are just like a horror writer they make some comics and stuff like that so in that like 
I enjoy challenging myself type of thing. They made a slapstick Invisible Man starring John C. Riley that's hilarious. Just a lot of uh, situations that are a funny concept, right? Conceptually funny. And also the execution is pretty funny in the pod. It's one of the best episodes they've produced so far, IMO. And it's real fun, real engaging, and they, unlike us, uh, lock it in at the end of every episode. So the continuity is what it is, and even though they can reflect on and say this is what they do better, this is what they have, and eventually those movies will one day be made, and that's their show. Check it out if you haven't. It's a much more finely combed version of how we do, where they do write scripts and add music and put in... (laughs) (laughs) more work than Amber and I farting into cameras. Does that make sense for everyone? does, except for the part where you said that we were farting into cameras. (laughs) Got you on that one, didn't I? You did. Because it was... It was the thing where I said it, and I was like, "Mm, don't think that's great. Hopefully no one notices it, and then you did. (laughs) I'm collectively saving the show from embarrassment by um, having one of us be annoying enough to notice it on air one of us has to take this podcast seriously so how i want this episode to work in specific is (laughs) a little peek behind the curtain it's been three weeks since amber and i have recorded so this idea has been milling around in my brain so i have a lot of it worked out uh i'm gonna sort of verbally recite I got lost on the word trailer. I'm going to verbally recite how the trailer works because that sort of goes over the main cast. Amber and I are then going to talk about that, sort of iron out character relationships and dynamics. We're going to break. Amber's going to do the thing where she paces around her room for 15 minutes to come up with an idea. We're going to come back in air and we're going to pitch episodes at each other. Did you say something? That's me. Because I think Amber does some of her best work when she paces around her room for 15 minutes <laughs> and then comes back to the mic. Uh, we're going to go over some episodes. Mm-hmm. I have written out the ending because it is a show that only lasts for one season. Potentially more about that forever. And I hold the right to not do the I ship it bit because this episode could potentially run long. And there's no reason to make it longer than it needs to be. And maybe one fun fact apiece. We'll see when we get to the end. Does that make sense to everyone in the room yes says everyone in the room i i said sitting in a car recording a podcast on my (laughs) ipad do you want to take it away yeah i just uh i was just swallowing something so okay the trailer begins a conventionally attractive woman steps forward because this is after all acw show and goes so let me get this straight we have on our team a where hog a man played by i can no longer remember the actor's name but amber you'd recognize him from tucker and dale vs evil the one who is not wash um but he steps forward and goes actually i prefer the term where bore the camera then pauses and it does that fun pop art display thing where names stats facts and figures pop up from suicide squad because that movie's not bad and the movie's not good but that was a pretty cool thing does that we have a where hog on our team We also have a human voodoo doll. A woman steps forward and goes, well, actually, voodoo dolls are a bit of a misnomer. That's actually Hollywood bullshit that has very little to do with the spiritual practice. The conventionally attractive woman looks slightly annoyed because she's heard this pitch several times. The voodoo doll then pauses and goes, functionally, yeah, that's what it is. She gets a pat on the back from Bert, our werehog. We also have a 
living gargoyle, a dejected French person steps forward, takes a giant jag of their cigarette, and simply says, we, because they are French, and dejected. The conventionally attractive woman then throws her hands up, shakes them about in a circular motion, goes, a benevolent poltergeist? The house then takes various things around the house to form a face, to make a winky face emoji. The flashcard goes up and says, David, the malevolent poltergeist. The conventionally attractive woman is cut off by a conventionally attractive man in a leather jacket to let you know that he's a bad boy because it's a CW show. Steps forward to cut her off saying, we've also got a... God damn it. <laughs> you having and fun? You enjoying yourself? I am enjoying myself. <laughs> we, have a, we have a reformed ex-prodigium agent, but don't sell yourself short because we saved the best for last. We've got on our side the offspring of one of the most famous one of the most famous vampires of all time. The eventually attractive woman is about to speak, but is comedically cut off by Bird who goes, Oh shit! We got Alucard on our team? No. He sucks. He's also adopted. Possibly dead. I'm Alamric, daughter of Carnilla. She's then cut off by Burning of a Sinner by Witch Hunter General, which is the theme of the show. Burner, burner, burning of the witch. If I'm editing this episode, that song will play. If not, I just embarrassed myself. We'll see what happens when it's on the cutting room floor. Amber, is there any idea for a character you'd like to introduce to our group? Or do you want to get into how these characters are and work out some dynamics? Oh, I didn't know it was... Oh, okay, okay. It's already me. So we have a benevolent poltergeist. We have werebore. We have um, a fr- French woman. <laughs> Living gargoyle. Yeah, but French woman. Uh, to be fair, real quick, it's a non-binary French person. We have Arthur... Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. We have Arthur, our reformed prodigium agent, because prodigium is the shield equivalent in the Dark Universe that friend of the show, Are You Got Afraid it. of the okay. Dark Universe, had to get. Cause, yeah, you get it. And Alamric, the daughter of Carnilla. And it's, it's Carmilla, by the way. I've heard it pronounced both, and I prefer Carnilla, so that's how I say it. And I you will just continue spelled it backwards, to say huh? It. Yep. Because, like, like Alucard. Like you Alucard. The Alucard thing. I do. Here's a fun fact about Alucard as a name is that it it super predates Castlevania. Like I know it sort of got famous off of Castlevania, but like Dracula has been using Alucard in Dracula movies for decades now. Um like decades before Castlevania even. He's in the Army Hammer movies as an alias, right? Mhm. Yeah. I think we want I think I want a scary mermaid. All right. Yeah. Cool. I love scary, scary mermaids in general. I'm a I'm a mark for them, but um I also think that it fits in with the like gothic horror ethos really well. Okay, yeah. And I yeah, I I yeah, you you read my assignment of slightly off monsters and then gave me a scary mermaid. All right, cool. I I don't yeah. have a place for her in my ending, but maybe I can think of one. <laughs> My cast of characters, I in my head already have dynamics and personalities that I've associated with them. I haven't cast anyone outside of Bert, and we'll go over casting more when I do his episode because it's a funny little anecdote. But like I said, yeah, it's the the lead of Tucker and Tail vs. Evil is the only show I think you'd know him from, and I can no longer remember that actor's name. Um, I don't feel a need to go over casting. That's just a bit well, I wanted Google to say. Luckily, Google will. Hold on. 
<laughs> there you go. We're going to pause for Google. Hey, we can edit it out. We, the the audience doesn't need to know that we're pausing for evil. And in fact, we don't even need to pause for for Google because I've already done it. Um, I don't know him from anything. I knew him from Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Yeah, that's why it's the only one I brought up. It's it's Tyler Labine, by the way. Tyler Labine, shout out to you. You're you're a fun guy. I I wish you got more work than you do, my man. Who is definitely listening to the podcast, and I'm speaking very familiarly to you. Thank you for listening, Tyler. <laughs> also, friend of the pod. <laughs> are the Are you afraid of the dark universe? People, even friends of the pod, have you been lying to me about even that? Well, they retweeted us and said we had a good dynamic and that our dark universe and theirs didn't overlap, and that was pretty cool. And they we've we've exchanged DMs several times. We've we've plugged their work and they've plugged oh, ours. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. So yeah, I've got I've got a core cast of quirky cryptids. Uh, what I don't have is like an overarching threat because I imagine it is mostly a monster of the week show with like a looming threat in the background that they go to face. My original idea was like Alan Rick steps forward and was like, yeah, you think set just gets to wake up one day in 2017 and other things don't wake up my mom has been warning me about this forever and i was like oh what if it's quitzilla poach that'd be fucking rad but then i realized that would mean i would have like a a white irish woman uh, killing a (laughs) mesoamerican deity and i go that could be strange what if i didn't do that (laughs) there are potentially bad optics even though quitzilla poachly is definitively like a giant piece of shit. Yeah, but like maybe still though, like if you if you wanted to use if you wanted to use them as a villain, you would maybe need it to not be you know, you would want maybe some indigenous people in the show. Yeah, so I so I <laughs> I have foregone that original idea. But yeah, I don't have like an overarching looming season threat that i think is the thing that should potentially be worked out at least a little bit do you have any thoughts or places to go with my very loose pitch that i've said to you out loud so it's a cw show right and i admittedly haven't watched that many cw shows but i did watch the first season of the scream tv show um before it became really clear that that was not doing anything that i cared about from scream um and i you know have seen some amount of riverdale on and off and that'll be a really exciting episode once we do that episode I have like I have some like cultural awareness of what a CW show is, right? I've seen the Jenny Nicholson Vampire Diaries video, and I like like in CW shows you don't necessarily always have like an ongoing story arc between seasons, right? Like it tends to be much more you have a big bad character for this particular season, right? And every season you have a new villain who is the villain for that season, and it resets every season, right? Is that am I? Yeah. And so we're coming up with like a one season big bad character for them to fight. <laughs> um this is Okay, this is this is the first thought that comes to me. Uh, please feel free to tell me this is fucking stupid and ridiculous and not even remotely what we're looking for. Um but what if the big bad of the first season is Sherlock Holmes? <laughs> Cuz like so much of it is about like 18th century like mystery novels and like off versions of that and like i don't know sherlock holmes to me feels like it's in the area of dracula and of the invisible man and of jekyll and hyde but sort of coming out of a slightly different genre i don't know it feels like a twist on the whole thing to me 
You're silent, which means you are not into it. That is stupid. That is dumb. I, <laughs> I, I feel okay. like okay. I feel like it could work, but my initial thought is, wow, that's kind of dumb. I'm sorry. That's kind of dumb. Perfect. Great. Thank you. No, that's good. That's what I needed to hear. <laughs> this is so the setting of the story is like it's contemporary, right? Yeah, contemporary Earth, but horror show public domain things are canon. How would you feel about a Yaga Baba overarching bad guy for a season? I like Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga is a mythical character, but sort of outside of the purview of the normal suite of suite of monsters. Yeah, it feels right for a quirky cast of cryptids. I will say, whilst we aren't dead air, that I've actually named my core cast of characters, and I forgot to go over them in their intro scene, so I'm just going to uh, do that real quick. You introduced some of them. Yeah, I said Bert and Arthur and Alamrick. Ooh, I was I was so disappointed that Carnilla backwards makes Alamrick and not something cool like Alcord. <laughs> but our human voodoo doll is named Senit uh, Baudelaire, and named after the Tigress of Haiti, who is rad as fuck. If you are at all interested in the history of Haiti, and you should be, because the history of Haiti is absolutely goddamn rad, look into her, because this is not a history podcast. This is a stupid podcast. And our That's gargoyle... That's us. What'd you say? That's, That's what they call, call us. us. <laughs> and our non-binary gargoyle is named Lake, short for Lakeshore Drive, and I'm going to get this one wrong, uh, but Baudelaire, and I know I'm getting that one wrong, but the idea I had is that gargoyles in this universe take the first name whatever street they happen to be on, and I was like, what if it takes place in Chicago? Because I'm from the Midwest and I love Chicago. Lakeshore Drive is a street I know about in Chicago, so Lake. And their last name is taken from the artist who sculpted them, because I'm going to give you a little bit of lore right now. But gargoyles in this universe, so says me right now, are can only be sculpted by an artist and they are only brought to life with the dying breath of that artist. So uh, Antoinette Baudelaire is a famous French sculptor. The most famous work I believe he has is Heracles the Archer. You can all look that up and Google it. And if you already knew about that, you're mad at me because I mispronounced the name, but I am neither French nor am I an art nerd. And so those are the names of our characters. I would like to name my... Um, scary mermaid Amara. I don't have a reason for that. You thought all of your things through. I just want to name her Amara. I mean, to be fair, I named I named our werebor Bert because I was like, what if I name him Boris because pig? And then I was like, that's fucking stupid, Devin. Think harder. And then I was like, Bert. And then I stopped. <laughs> so yeah, we've got our cast. We've got Baba Yaga and. TBH, since it's a first draft pitch, I don't really think we need to figure out what her goal is. I would like kind of the vibe. Female Kingpin is kind of how I'm picturing it, but her version of a discussion at a crime family is out in the woods. Does that make sense to you? How is she threatening if she's just in the woods? Because, like, her usual thing is that she, like, steals and cooks and eats children right that's her normal thing is that she she steals and cooks and eats children mm. which is like like we don't have to stick with that like that's a very dark thing to put in your cw show although not necessarily an especially bad shit thing to put in her, your cw show 
but we definitely want if she's doing crime in the woods we want it to matter to people right like she is inducting a cult of children or she is kidnapping people or something like that Ooh, i like cult of children but my thought was less cult like of children's wood... creepy right yeah i like that i i think we've discovered on the thing but my thought was less wood crime and more so like oh you want to meet with the boss put on this blindfold and then they throw you in the back of the car they drive and you drive out in the middle of the woods and that's where you have to talk to her less like yeah that's pretty i good. don't know yeah, yeah yeah that was that's the what's the wood crimes but yeah she's got a cult of kids they're like are they like spooky brainwashed kids are they like spooky willing kids who are there on purpose are they like maybe it's a thing of like she kidnaps them as babies and then she like raises them as her own and they are like you know yeah that one that i like that one shoot yeah oh. yeah there we go we did it and our group have to defeat her that feels good to me does it feel good to you so i'm curious if you like because you told me before we went on air it does feel good to me um before we went on air you told me that you had an episode for every one of these characters but you didn't have a sense of like what the overarching storyline was going to be yeah i almost said as a writer i <laughs> as someone who uh, cares about character and story and has a, a dirge of OCs, the part that excites me is not scenarios and reactions to them so much as like character dynamics and how they relate to each other. And so in coming up with like loose episode pitches, I can figure out how characters work and who they are as opposed to like an ongoing A to B to C unfolding plot. It's a playing to my strengths sort of a thing. Or were you like looking for me to more get into the episodes, right? What what uh what question are you looking for me to answer? With no, that? I just I I don't know. I think I was just prompting you with like it's interesting that you didn't that you like you have ideas for these episodes, but you don't necessarily have ideas for, but or like. Not that you don't have ideas, but that you 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 were coming up with that idea with episodes before actually knowing what the broader story arc was going to be. I guess I guess the question I'm asking is about what an average week of the show looks like because it sounds to me like you were saying it's like a monster of the week type situation, and these are characters who are what like a young Avengers situation, a like a set of people who are stop monsters from doing bad things they've like taken that mantle onto themselves um sure. i picture a monster of the week show and occasional episodes will be about the more overarching larger plot that has to do with yakababa so now that's like like her having a cult is a great reason for like these kids to do things that bring more of these monsters here to chicago that our group then has to fight does that make sense? And or do you have any ideas to make it make more sense? So I guess, so we're really close. So the thing specifically that I'm wondering about is what is, what is the mechanism by which we require these characters to fight evil every week? Because a lot of monster shows, like, like in Buffy, Buffy is like called upon by higher powers to fight the demons of the world. And once a generation has chosen his, uh, chosen his, a slayer is chosen to to fight the darkness. Like, have they have they made it their mission to fight evil, or does evil just continue to find its way to them? I think Arthur has like 
wants to be the Buffy special chosen boy, like is very much about finding and fighting the evil and most of the rest of the cast, like evil happens to, I, th- I think it's, a, I'm, I'm being dumb. I think it's a mix um, because I imagine Alamrick as more dejected and disinterested in doing this out of like happenstantial obligation. She stumbled ass backwards into this and other characters are more about solving the monster problem. I think some people are excited and some people it's a fact of living in haunted Chicago. Okay, that makes sense to me. I also love sh- love Haunted Chicago as a setting. I can work with Haunted Chicago. Excellent. Haunted Chicago, punch it in, it's canon. I'm excited about this. Okay, we can do that. Yeah, I can come up with some episodes for this. Okay, cool. Do you want to break now, you pace, and I just kind of sit here and relook at my notes? Yes. Okay. All right, cool. Yes. I'm going to break. I'm going to go to the other room. I'm going to be back in a minute. All right, and we're back. We've worked out our pitches. Amber, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? How would you like to play this? Um, I think that given that you are so much more prepared than for this, probably, since you had, like, three weeks to think about it, and I just took, like, 15 minutes, um, I almost think that I want to go first so I can set the tone so it's going to be less embarrassing when the first one I have is kind of underdeveloped. All right, Um, go for it. But... I want, I also did, I know that you did like one episode per character, um, mm-hmm. and I, um, do you have a, do you have an order that you wanted to do those in? Yeah, I've got an episode that is just like based on Monster of the Week before anything else, then it's David, then Bert, then Sunit, then Lake, then Arthur, then Alamrick. Never mind then. I'm just going to start with Alamrick, my Alamrick episode, since you're ending with your Alamrick episode, just so that we have... It's like couplets. I like... It rhymes. Um, so, you know, like, the, the, the three witches thing. You have three witches um, with a big uh, fucking cauldron, and they um, cast spells and uh, tell the future. And, like, that part of it is going to be really critical, that you have that arrive on the scene these three witches who are floating around doing magic and being scary and also this is a great opportunity to um put in some foreshadowing about other things and probably also even connect them to baba yaga maybe they were three um people who used to be in baba yaga's employ when they were children but then they like grew out of it or like escaped or something um and that's like from whence the magical connection happens um and i think that the three witches um, probably are not strictly malevolent to the characters involved, but are definitely like coming in and trying to claim our characters. Like, are they, it's a CW show. Are they in high school? I imagine more supernatural arrow age than Riverdale personally. Okay, great. So I think that our three witches are, I don't know, laying, laying claim to their neighborhood, maybe. The witches are like, we've been here first. And they're actually making some authoritative claims about, like, no, we grew up here. Um, we have control over this area. And also, we can see the future. You're not going to be there. Um, and we get some, like, hints that the witches, you know, foresight maybe isn't perfect, but it is consistent enough. Um, and I think that, like, the major theme that I would have running through this episode is, like, this concept of authority where a, a Lambrick. Alamric really starts to butt heads with them immediately because she 
she's had trouble with, you know, uh, authority figures in the past and maternal authority figures specifically. And I think these three, like, witches maybe, like, try to adopt this, like, core of people. They try to be like, listen, we know what we're better doing better than you do. We're going to try to pick up this slack. And Alamric like, really reacts really poorly to that right away. She's like, these people are trying to get control. Um, we can't let them do that, you guys. And it sort of becomes this thing where it splits the party a little bit, where a lot of other people, like, at first they agree with her, but eventually they're like, I don't know, Alamric. It seems like maybe these three witches sort of know what they're doing and know what they're talking about. And it becomes this struggle where Alamric has to, like, try to... Where, like, Alamric is trying to defy the witches, and we as the audience have to kind of, like, wonder, okay... Is she, like, is she going off the deep end? Is she wrong about this? But I think I want, in the end of the episode, you know, some plot happens. And in the end, Alamric is ultimately reaffirmed that, you know, she, like, makes some final decision where she splits from the group and is like, I'm going to do this thing differently than the witches are telling me to do it. And in the end, um, uh, she does something the witches didn't predict. And it becomes about, uh, not just about asserting your own destiny in the face of, like, you know, destiny, but also in the face of, like, who the people around you, like, what the people around you are expecting you to do, and about, like, her ability to, um, to resist authority, maybe in, like, a way where she has to undergo an arc where she, like, learns to do it, um, in a way that is kind to the friends around her or something. I haven't worked out exactly what the arc is yet. Uh, it's a, it's a broad, it's a broad gist of all these episodes, but... Alambric uh, versus the witches is my concept for this. I want to say, Amber, thank you, because I did the thing where I started to doubt the episode in real time because I've spent three weeks with these characters. So who they are it, like already exists in my head in a way I haven't felt I've adequately explained over the course of this episode. So thanks for having a pitch that is good and an episode I would like to see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that it doesn't did that did that did that feel in line with who Alamric is to you? Yeah, it it really does actually. <laughs> like Great, going cool. against the group is totally our thing. Um I'm going to start with my first one who is unrelated almost to any of the main cast because this is a thing TV doesn't do anymore, but they used to it used to be like a big deal if you got a big name like guest spot actor and that's what the episode was based around. And so I was like, I want crazy monster of the week what if it's a shadow man and i abandoned that idea and i was like okay what if i go with like a decomposing villain someone who like touches you and you oh, just like rot away it's a cool idea but they're always played like there is only decay and that's boring what if pestilence was like a jive talking smooth motherfucker in a zoot suit and i was like that's a cool idea what that if it's cool. what if it's wood harris Motherfucking Avon Barksdale, who Amber, you'll know from Creed. He's the coach who isn't Rocky. That's the idea. And I just, I like the idea of Pestilence as personified as like a drug dealer. And most of like the character stuff is because like Pestilence is someone who loves the game, who is about watching things slowly erode. And like what drugs do to the community is it slowly kills your body and slowly poisons your community over time. And I think that's a cool idea. And I think that is definitively someone who is more powerful than the cast. And that's always fun to play around with. And so I would not want them to beat him. I would want a stalemate or like a contention. And the idea I came up with I just had, like, they beat him at the end, but I called my fucking shot from our list of things, our, I forgot what it's, mm -hmm. our Chekhov's guns, I saw loaded dice, I say, oh, they beat him in a game, 
and uh, he sees that Cute. they cheat. Okay, yeah. And the thing that gets him is like, oh, I, res- I respect the hustle. Like, <laughs> you you were willing to cheat? That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm going a, I'm to a see y'all around at the end, though. And the episode ends on, like, one of the characters pointing to the Bible and being like, hey, wait a minute. Like, some ancient tapestry with, like, four horsemen. Like, is he? Now, that that can't be true. And Bert walks up. Like, yeah, says the Knights Templar to the vampire points at Alamrick. And the episode just ends on, like, did we just fight a fourth member of the apocalypse? You just like come to realize, oh, they just uh, they just dealt with something way bigger than we knew that it was. Yeah, I like it when that happens. That's my first episode pitch. That's a good one, and you're right. That is. So, is there like a that that's not tied to any particular character? That's just sort of like a generalized all of them sort of an episode. Yeah, that's a everybody episode. Yeah, sick, love it. Uh, no particular order. Let's do the Amara episode. That's our scary mermaid. Um, I imagine so she. Um, is a mermaid in Lake Michigan. I assume we have some sort of like on-land traversal method for her, but it's in Chicago. It's right on Lake Michigan. Um, she belongs to the lake. She spends a lot of time in there. But I'm thinking maybe like, so Amara, raised by a single dad, doesn't know who her mom is. Um, and I think that we have an episode that's sort of about that, where she like starts her, her so her dad is human, and he has these like stories about her mom, um, uh, as some kind of, like, of, like, creature of the sea where she would get, like, these migratory feelings. And then one day Amara starts to have migratory feelings. She has, like, this urge to go into the sea. And so you, into the, or into the, the, the lake, um, which is, I mean, practically a sea. And so you have, um, uh, you get to have an aquatic episode where the characters, um, go after the thing that Amara is after. Um, and it becomes about her search for her uh parental like identity and then like when but when they get there um it turns out there's like a migratory like she doesn't talk to her dad about the feelings she just like goes out and does it with her friends and when we get there um it turns out that like the the migratory pattern she was chasing is like like it isn't like a return to the nest thing. It's like a psychic call by this like terrifying, like Cthulhu fucking sea monster deep underground. And you get this like scary moment where Amara or yeah, Amara has her like mind almost taken over. And it's clear that she's like trying to like enact some ritual through mind control to like wake the sea monster up or no, I'm changing my mind on that. It's not mind control. She just becomes really convinced that like waking up this monster, which is like clearly a very bad idea is going to give her the key to like her identity. And then the group has to talk her out of it. I promise not every pitch that I have is going to be like this character versus the whole group. Uh, But in this instance, it becomes like she has to, um, in the end of the episode, decide not to wake up the eldritch horror that is sleeping beneath the depths of Lake Michigan. And she goes back and talks to her dad in the end of the episode. And he's like, yeah, no. Or like maybe even before the end, maybe this is like part of her realization. He says like, I, um, this isn't your mom. Obviously your mom is not a horrifying um, uh, eldritch outer god that's sleeping beneath Lake Michigan. I barely knew your mom i told you all those stories because you wanted like a sense of identity of who you were uh where you came from but i don't actually have all those answers for you um and we leave it kind of like the actual nature of her parentage we leave it ambiguous we keep it open but um the thing that she takes away from it is that she gets to 
like self empower her own sense of direction and um not every question that she has gets to be answered and she gets to um uh self actualize in a lack of knowledge that's my that's my amara pitch Oh, that's really good. I like that. I like that this character now has a place in the group. I can't tell you how much I love the idea that Cthulhu is in fucking Lake Michigan. It's <laughs> not literally Cthulhu, but it's definitely like a Cthulhu, you know? Yeah, you know, a Cthulhu. As a Midwestern bitch, that makes me so happy. I, man, right? stories about growing up, that's good. Good shit. Good shit, brother. Hell yeah. Excellent. Thank you. All right, I'm going to go over my David episode next, and I'm just going to give away this fun fact right now as opposed to the end. But the bit I have with David, our malevolent poltergeist, is he has to communicate through, like, anthropomorphizing various objects in the house. So, like, blinds will look like furrowed brows to tell you he's mad. Oh, that's cute as hell. And the rub is that the David through just, like, so much afterlife having been lived, is the most emotionally intelligent and always says, like, the correct thing, the moral of the story, the thing the character is dealing with, like, the best advice to get them through it. And it is not that none of them speak Spanish, it's that none of them are ghost hunting nerds, so they don't think to record what David is saying and play it backwards, but if you, the audience, do, all of his dialogue is, like, legit. <laughs> That's just That's the right that's throwing him but his episode is like they all leave and like watch the house david we'll, we'll be back we gotta go deal with baba yaga's kid cult and he's like cool and then a mouse shows up and david's like oh neat but then it chews through a wall and the house shakes and the brows furrow and just like a scott pilgrim edit of like mouse versus david round one fight and it just turns into the movie mousetrap and that's david's episode god damn it I feel bad now because I didn't do a David episode. I knew that you did six, and so I did six, but I, like we have seven characters here, and so I left off David because I was like, well, he's home base. Um, he'll get a bunch of stuff in other places. Yeah, he, he, like, you know, just, uh, anthropomorphizing your home base, it's fine. It's I don't have one for Marek. I, I just didn't think of anything. So, like, you yeah. know, some people get left out. Well, on the subject of, uh, like, slightly comic relief episodes, I'm going to go to my Bert episode. I think that Bert makes a golem. I think that um, uh, I guess I guess casually make Bert Jewish here, or you know maybe he gets the advice from the Jewish friend or something. He finds out about golems in some way. He has an inspiration. He decides to make a golem. Like you have the classic comic relief character thing, where at some point the character goes like, "Hey, what am I even like doing for this group? Like, what's my function?" And I think Bert has like a crisis of identity about that and decides to make a golem in order to like fill in his role or or like do his all-purpose housely duties so that he can get more involved in the actual like supernatural fighting portion of it to like prove himself uh but obviously when you make a golem and you give it some you probably give it some like very literal instructions and then the golem doesn't necessarily act in the way you want it to act like the golem is like a protectorate figure right and so i'm thinking like maybe Bert creates this golem in order to help him out, and the golem does do that, but then the golem starts trying to um, defend Bert, like, maybe too much, you know? You do the the Mithrigan thing, or the Asimov robot series thing, where the golem takes its purpose um, too far, and it starts getting in Bert's way, and he comes to, like... Like, a lot of this, I think, becomes, like, slightly hijinks, maybe some action stuff, but ultimately it becomes about Bert... 
uh, contending with the idea that the rough parts about him are the things that his friends like and that smoothing his effectiveness to the group out to like a perfect efficient sheen um, takes away the thing that they like about him and it actually in some ways makes it more difficult and complicated because his friends like stop being able to um, connect with him on a human level uh, so in the end of the episode um, he wipes the mark off of the golem's head and uh, returns it to stone alright yeah I, I feel that I think it's a little askew from like my vision but I, I enjoy that I enjoy when things are not just always 100% what I have in my own mind we can we can adjust it a little bit. I mean, how is it different from your vision? I more so imagine like Bert is like having like coming with con like in my brain he's the tank, he's the heavy and he's very confident in his place and position here. Yeah, that. Those those words I just said. Okay. Let me give you two options then. Either A, this episode happens very very early on in the season and that's how Bert becomes the character that we know him as for the rest of the season. Or B, we find something happens that really shakes Bert's confidence. And we, like, have a real understanding of who Bert is. And then in the moment that Bert... And then something happens that is, like, really traumatizing to Bert. That's, like, really horrible to him. That causes him to feel this way. And the resolution that causes Bert to wipe the mark off of the golem at the end of the episode is, like, a connection with his friends about this like horrible thing that he went to and like finally like honestly opening up about it i like this i like the second one i like his friends realize that something is wrong because you the audience and the characters in the show know that bert is really self-confident and so when he does this it causes all of his friends to realize that something is wrong and to reach out to him because they can tell that something is fucked up because bert would never do that yeah, I like that. I yeah, yeah. I think yeah, yeah. Collaborative storytelling is good. Is good. <laughs> My immediate thought is like the bad thing that happens is because I haven't vocalized this outside, but I imagine that Bert and Sinit are like the best of friends, platonic, just healthy. They are the best friends. Love they that. hijink all the time. They get along. I think something happens and she gets hurt, and that really shakes Bert's confidence. I ah. oh, I love that. I'm so happy we did this together. Um, and now it's time for my Bert episode. So I'm going to say that if you are a smart writer, you will come up with an internal conflict that the character is dealing with and an external force that in some way mirrors that. And I don't know if all of my pitches rose to that occasion, but I want to start with a little bit of lore, because if there's one thing I love, it's lore and character stuff. And so once you say werewolves canon, I immediately go, are other were things canon? Can they please be? I love a werebore. And I said yes, because it's my own pitch. And so if you introduce... I get to. And the idea I had for werebores is that werebores are more nomadic. They travel in packs, but they don't stay in one place for a long time. So it's a, like, direct-pointed decision that Bert stays in the house with this group of people because he's found someone he likes in a place he wants to stay. And another lore idea I have is that, like... So there's this notion wherein 15% of people are generally good and want to help, and 15% of people generally want to do harm unto others, and the rest sort of just fall in the easiest thing and go along within society. I bring this up to say that if were creatures are canon, werewolves real, sometimes you get 
uh, Gwen and Larry from our friend's Dark Universe and who are good people and want to help. And there's a whole werewolf mutual aid that Dalton introduced. What Just a great idea for the whole of werewolf canon. That being said, if werewolves are real, one of them is going to be a fucking serial killer. <laughs> and that will be a problem. And there's no, like, I turn on, I turn off the where thing you have there needs to be like outside means if you want to enact a transformation outside of a full moon and if that is a thing there is going to be someone people who continuously do that my thought is if you are that person who continuously does that as an excuse to murder eventually you're going to become a giant monster and this is where like dire wolves come from because i'm dumb and every like seven months ago are dire wolves real or are they fantasy nonsense and i type are dire wolves real into google and i find out that they are but this is my excuse for like rats of unusual size and so the monster of the week is a dire wolf shows up and if werewolf mutual aid is something that is real then this is a community that like self-polices and self-regulates and helps each other own a werewolf would deal with a dire wolf problem, but Bert's already in this area, so we'd have to help. And my thought was, I make it young Josh Bernthal, because Josh Bernthal is a werewolf who shows up in their the werewolf movie, and because the continuity is supposed to be wonky, this is like a fun thing where people are like, what? How does this work? And the idea I had is that... And... <laughs> talked, I talked. I said I was going to talk about casting, but I wanted Bert to be like... A bigger guy, but a, a charismatic and a confident, like a sexy big man, right? And I was like, oh, what if it's Lou Wilson? But then I realized the idea I wanted to play with couldn't be what I want it to be if I cast Lou Wilson, because the idea I had is that Josh Bernthal Werewolf would, like, say things that definitively make, like, a line in the sand between him and Bert. And this is the phenomenon of, like, if in the diaspora, the ways in which we can otherize and racialize ourselves. Dominicans being like, uh, yo, poppy, no black. And it's like, fool, you look like my cousins. And the ones whose last name is Williams, not the one named Reese. Fuck is you talking about, homie? Y'all from the Haitian <laughs> islands. It's like, even within a group, we there are like racial dynamics at play that we can otherize and put each other down. And I think that is what I would want the episode to tackle with a werewolf versus a werehog, and I wouldn't want the episode to be, like, uh, prescriptive of a solution because I do not have one more so dealing with the reality that this is a thing that happens. And if I do that and I cast Lou Wilson, who is a black man, and I have Josh Bernthal saying, like, racially loaded things, that changes what the episode is. So that's a lot of words about my bird episode. Wait, which 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 version of the episode did you land on? Uh, the one where it's I I do not cast Lou Wilson. I I cast great, the guy we good. talked about in the first one because that would be <laughs> not great. It'd be not something enough. else. Yeah, it'd be something sure. else. Yeah, okay, good. Because if you didn't get it, there was a chance the audience didn't get it. I'm happy we now have that clarity. Cheers. Uh, okay. Uh, let me do my um, let's say my lake episode. All right. I'm curious what you have for lake. Here's my question for you. Uh, how old is Lake? Lake has existed since the early 1900s. Okay, great. So um, that's perfect. Uh, my So this episode is largely about dealing with time. I'm thinking that Lake is feeling, like, stifled in their, like, perpetuity i'm thinking the lake feels like in a sense of arrested development in some way we you know show that early in the episode and then um the monster that we have is is unclear at first people start dying and it seems like 
not just dying, but being reduced into, like, decayed corpses with mold all over their bodies. And, like, overgrown with moss. And um, the characters all quickly deduce that, oh, like, this is some sort of, like, a time aberration that's killing people. It, like, is, is enveloping people in a little pocket of time and then speeding it up. Um, so that the people decay, like, super, super fast. And nobody is ever, like, seeing it happen. Um, so they're all, like, what kind of a creature could be doing this? And a lot of the episode becomes about researching and trying to track down this creature. And this gives Lake a chance to, like, to, like, grapple with the ways that time is and is not affecting them. And so they're like, I have to be the perfect person to go after this creature, um, partly, like, because it's the right tactical move, but also you get the sense partly because Lake is desperate for, um, a, a, a sense of speed in their life, a sense of, like, getting time to pass more quickly, a, and, like, maybe even a sense of advancement within themselves in a way they're not currently getting. Um, but then, um, during the confrontation, like, during some critical moment after a, like, emotional sequence, it becomes, suddenly, we get the reveal that it's not a time monster it's the moss that's growing on the bodies themselves the moss is alive and killing people and like decaying their bodies sorry for stealing pestilence from you i just you know we came up with these episodes separately and we both came up with a pestilence villain mine is just like a sentient or at least a, a living uh, uh feeling moss um and of course uh, lake is not immune to an evil moss um uh, moss grows quite happily on gargoyles and so uh, suddenly we put Lake in this exciting action climax and also suddenly Lake has to deal with their mortality in like a big way. And so the episode becomes about like like Lake finding once again their like desire to continue to 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 to, to live in the world, finding their their will to experience time the way that it happens to them. And they defeat the moss monster somehow. I don't I, I didn't work that part out. It didn't seem that important to me. Yeah, it's loose pictures and Apparently. like you know char uh, how a character is is some is more important than literal plot i truly do believe yeah uh i so i was gonna do my sinit baudelaire pitch next but i think i'm gonna do my lake one because there are some ways in which ours don't run the same and i think discussing okay. them is the best way to iron this stuff out so lake was the character where i was like i don't have anything because originally i was like Alan Rick is going to point and be like an emotional vampire. And I was like, that's just psycho pirate Devin, a color vampire. That's a funny gag, but I don't know how powers work. And I just set on living gargoyle and I was like, ah, French, they smoke cigarettes and they're dejected. I'm an American. I didn't have any ideas, but then I, I, I figured the bit of characterization, like the sentence I found that like made me excited was that Lake does not have an avoidant attachment type. Lake has a confident attachment type that is so confident Lake does not feel a need to express the love or gratitude around mm. the people mm. that they are thankful for because to them it is so self-evident. And I figured that out and I was like, okay, I like Lake. What's their monster of the week? And I was like, um, what if Lake has an X? And they come back and problems ensue. And I didn't want to do like an abusive thing because I don't think I have a lived experience that would provide nuance to that experience. It is out of my wheelhouse. So what if the problem is that it's good? Like it's really good. Lake is excited that their ex is about how do problems present from that. And the idea I came up with is I, when I stumbled upon 
gargoyles are brought to life by the dying breath of an artist. I was like, okay, so then they like have somewhat of an artist's soul and Lake is French. Joie de vivre, a joy to life. What is Lake like? And my idea was Lake loves life, loves experiences. They have existed since the early 1900s and they are not tired of this shit yet. There are still new things. They love fusion food. Well, wow, that is directly com- contradictory to the thing that I wrote, huh? <laughs> so we'll, we'll figure it out and it'll work. Uh-huh. And the other idea I had for like lore stuff is that gargoyles are solitary creatures there's not a lot of them and they don't stick together so again it is a direct point of decision that lake chooses to stick around with these people and when gargoyles do stick together they become human and mortal and i picture lake as mostly just like a no saturation person and then for fight scenes you break out like a fun prosthetic suit and so as lake spends more time with their ex like the color is being brought back and lake is being more expressive and like painting and making breakfast and uh, kissing the roommates on the cheek and hugging them and saying i love you and leaving like poems that are really sweet and thoughtful and everyone's like what this isn't the lake i know lake has cigarettes for breakfast and stays in the room all day what's happening you know they find out that like to for gargoyles to stay together is to become mortal and agree to like die essentially at some point and the rub the reason lake can't stay with their ex despite it being a good and fulfilling relationship is because lake is never going to get over life first and like the final scene is those two speaking in french and the ex is like stay with me and lake says i love you but i'm never gonna love you enough to not regret the decision and walks away And the stinger I had, (laughs) because I came up with the following scene that I would not want because I hate it when you have an emotional scene and you undercut it with a joke, but like the ending stinger, like credits roll, like goes back to the house, is that Sinit, because it's Haitian, speaks French, so like is crying, and Alamric, who is cultured, knows some French, so is like cool girl fighting back tears, but Arthur leans over to Bert and he's like, do you know what's going on? Bert's like, no, nah, man, I took intro to Spanish in high school. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what's happening. Okay, so we're definitely going to have to like play it cool and ask Sunit what just happened, right? But yeah, that's my like episode pitch. Do you want to smooth out <laughs> how our two it's can coincide? It, it's like so directly opposed to mine and also like so much better than my pitch. I think yours works if it comes before mine and it is like... Because you can love life and still have bouts wherein you are not happy with where things are going. And stagnation is a thing you would feel. And particularly if you are an artist, stagnation is like anathema to how you want to be. You want to be doing new and exciting things. And so I think, yeah, I think you make it more focused on stagnation like in general as opposed to being tired of life. And that works. And then in the episode, it reaffirms the thing that my episode deals with, that living and experience is what Lake truly loves. What if it's not stagnation? What if it's specifically aging? What if it's, like, like Lake is seeing some of the others get old? Does Lake have any, like, pre-existing relationships with these char- with any of the other characters? No, but we can make some. Like, we can say that Lake is, like, I don't know, long-time best friends with Arthur or something. Except that, like, now, this other character that, like, knows suddenly, like, we have, like, it's it's their birthday or something. We get, like, an episode where, or or they get, like, a first gray hair or something. They're exhibiting signs of aging. And Lake has to deal with the fact that they 
don't experience those things and those are experiences they've never had and lake with their love of life their zeal for like the experiences of the world have to like grapple with the fact that these are like experiences that they will never get to have and uh, from thence comes the desire to like experience time in the way that other people do to like connect with their connect with their roommates connect with their friends the ability to to feel age in the way that other people feel age. Thus why they want to go after and pursue time. And then when the moss monster attacks them and they realize they're not going to experience time and they like feel the threat of mortal feel like the threat of mortality from the moss monster. Like the experience of fearing mortality gets to be a thing where like they get to share that with another character maybe they get to like we get to like have a conversation where lake talks to a character who experienced some mortal peril in like a previous episode and they get to like bond over it and lake gets to feel like oh like this experience was horrible i'm glad i got to share it with you that was wonderful some experiences i don't know we turn into like there are some experiences that i'm not going to be able to have um and that's okay and we make that like the thing is that like there are some experiences that they that they simply will not ever be able to have and that's okay with them and i don't know we find a way to fit it in cleaner than it currently fits with the current state of the episode this podcast works creative storytelling works i yeah i like i like that we've able to iron this out i i lake went from like my i have no ideas to possibly my favorite character in the cast i'm lake's really uh, interesting i i'm so happy with this do you want to do you want to pitch your next one um uh sure let's go with arthur next um our former rodigium agent okay here are the things that here are the things i have written for this episode like a murder mystery um uh rodigium comes back to get involved or you know maybe they don't even because i bet that yours is going to get the rodigium involved so maybe we don't even need that there's so there's a murder mystery and arthur is like the one who knows how to do that he's a professional because he's been a part of the rodigium he knows how all of this works and so he can like spring into like professionalism mode um, uh, but he feels really complicated about the fact that he can spring into professionalism mode because he's no longer attached to that organization. Um, and so the fact that some of those skills are coming up for him um, is, I don't know, potentially complicated. And the the resolution that we come to over the course of that murder mystery um, is that it's a body snatchers plot. Then the monster of the week becomes uh, which of these characters are who they say they are, and the whole thing gets to be a... A, a meditation on identity and about knowing who you are. I think ultimately the summation that I would want to get out of that is identity is not an essential quality of the self. It's a, it's a set of behaviors uh, that come over a long time span that, that come together into a person. And so, um, it's not that he is a former Rogigium, it's that he has that former Rogigium training. And um I don't know, is that is that once again there are no body snatchers? Is that what the resolution on that is? <laughs> I will say I'm tickle pink that you picked up on Arthur's thing is 
being a former Prodigium agent and having complicated feelings with about that and personally struggles with identity and I like ending on the note that identity is not a stagnant thing. I am X list of things. Identity is fluid and changes as you grow as a person. I really like that. I was originally going to go with my Sunit episode, but now I kind of want to do my Arthur episode to see how you feel about it. Is that cool with you? Yes. Wait, hold on. Okay, wait. I have. I, I do have a resolution that you, you like track down the, the, the people who have been body snatched and uh, the final confrontation, you talk to them and it turns out like the body snatchers aren't like malevolent evil like forces come to kill everyone. They've come and taken... Um, exclusively the bodies of the recently deceased and retained all of their memories. The The body snatchers aren't villains, um, and they aren't unrelated to the people who were in the bodies before. They're part of... Those people are a part of who they are, and they're also new things now. That's the resolution of that episode. They're body snatchers, but the body snatchers in the end aren't evil. Ooh, that's good. I like that. Okay, thank you. I had to... Okay, you can you can do your Arthur episode now. Where do I want to start with Arthur? Okay, I'm going to talk about a, a dynamic from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., another inspo where continuity is walkie and it's a show people don't love <laughs> for this episode. But <laughs> in season one of S.H.I.E.L.D., Ward and legally not Black Widow get into this like three episode arc wherein they start hooking up because there is a magnetic physical attraction and they've got like this excess energy and it's the thing they keep secret from the rest of the group and i love that dynamic wish it made wish it mattered more to the show than it did so in my brain what if i steal that and do it better and alamrick and arthur hook up and from alamrick's perspective it is just you're hot and i want to fuck why are you making me breakfast in bed stop it <laughs> and arthur's like oh i t didn't misread the situation at all i'm totally not uh more uh, emotionally vulnerable right now than i thought i would be <laughs> i'm gonna go take an assignment out of out of chicago for a week because man boy howdy is that a is that a character note i certainly love for reasons that aren't specific to my lived experience but when i was coming up with this episode God. <laughs> When I was coming up with this episode, I was a little worried that I did something of a magical minority trope. So some things I change around is Arthur meets an indigenous Canadian person named Lance. And it is not that he meets, is that Lance is introduced like early on in the season. And Lance was a former prodigium informant. So they have a pre-existing relationship. And Lance actually calls up Arthur and is like, hey there are some Wendigos happening because I'd love a Wendigo happening and it's a very Who cold doesn't? and I... Yeah, they're awesome! They're such a cool cryptid! And so it's a very a cold and isolated story and a thing... Originally, Arthur was going to be like the second to last, but I switched it up and it's fine. Um, but the thing I want to introduce is like, hopefully over the course of my like pitches for these characters is they are all queer and that is in text... Alan Rick is bisexual. I'm not going to have the daughter of Carmilla not be bisexual. That would be a fuck Obviously, up on my Obviously, Carmilla's daughter's gay. There was no question that Alan Rick was going to be straight. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Lake is non-binary. But also, like, queer is just to go against the dominant social norms of the given society. And so, like, that queerness should... Hopefully, you've noticed that it lands in, like, 
Bert is solitary. He sticks around. Lake has a group that they stay with, so on and so forth. And so Arthur is like our cishet white straight guy, but he had sex with a vampire. And vampirism as sexual expression is something that I tend to not pay attention or care about. But if there's one thing I like from Lestat, it's that vampirism like sexually liberates you and Arthur had sex with a vampire. He's been infected by the woke mind. <laughs> so it's like exposure therapy in the sense of like, I wasn't comfortable around drag queens. I went to a drag show and now it's cool and dope. Uh, so <laughs> my idea for the episode was Wendigo happens. Of course, there's like a cave in and an ice cave. And now Lance and Arthur have to get like real snug for body Heath. And there's a lot of close up tender shots. And now Arthur's like, is this like more than just like he's my bro and I feel like emotionally comfort around him and I wanted to get away from the situation? Am I attracted to my friend Lance? And the episode ends and Lance is like, be seeing you around, right, Art? And Art's like, fuck yeah, dude. Lip bite for that <laughs> that Poe gives to Finn. <laughs> Those square pretty cleanly. I love it when they square pretty cleanly. Yeah. Sometimes they just match up. What does Who's Afraid of the Dark Universe do with Van Helsing? He gets murdered in the opening of their Legion of Dracula movie. Uh, he shows up to... Who's the guy who shows up in the beginning of Dracula? Do, do you want like a full explainer or is what I just gave you cool? I, I give you a little bit more than that. Okay, uh, he shows up, and it's supposed to be, like, the guy who first shows up in the opening bit of Dracula, and you find Jonathan out that he's Arker. Helsing. Yeah, Jonathan Arker, but then it's, a, like, a reveal that he's Van Helsing, and Dracula has already, like, mind-slaved uh, Van's wife, and then mind-slaves Van Helsing, and they play Dracula as, like, a detached sociopath, and at first, like, both Van and Van's wife, like, come on to Dracula and start, like making out with and like groping him and stuff and Drax and you can see that Drac wants this to work but he's like ah fucking I don't it's not this this does nothing for me eat each other and they uh proceed to sex murder each other well they are mind slaves to Dracula and that's, that's fucked up yep that's it's fuck they do hor Dalton is adamant that they do horror movies in their dark universe Jesus Christ so for Sunit's story, I want a monster hunter to show up. Um, and it kind of makes sense for it to be in... I mean, it's in the style of the way that Van Helsing is understood, right? It's not necessarily... Like, I don't need it to be someone in the actual Van Helsing lineage, um, but maybe someone who studied his writings. Um, uh, I... Somebody who definitely... Could I make a suggestion to do another weird continuity thing? Sure. Uh, the protagonist in Dylan's Jekyll X Hyde is Gabby last name, where she like tries to take the Hyde formula and it doesn't actually work, and you just have to love yourself and learn that people are complicated. But she now knows that Monsters is real, and she is a detective, and it makes a lot of sense for a detective to show up in a like Monster of the Week show. She could have been a monster hunter because Dalton was like, I don't have any other ideas for this character. She's done. Well, now she's ours, and she's shown up, and she she's does... She's She shows up in an episode of ours. <laughs> take that. Take that, So Gabby nerds. shows up. Gabby shows up to do some monster hunting, and um, everybody's like, oh, no. Um, she's here to do some monster. She, like, knocks on the door. 
and everybody's like trying to play it cool and she's like i'm here to do some monster hunting and they're like what monsters aren't real haha and she's like no i know they are and everybody at first assumes that she's there to hunt a lamrick um but she's not it soon becomes pretty clear um that she's there to hunt sunit she's like yeah there's a um you know, a human voodoo doll here. I think so. To, okay, talk to me a little bit about what you mean by hu- human voodoo doll. So, in my brain, because most people don't know how voodoo actually works, um, and that becomes text, we'll get it when I do my episode. But essentially, if she gets an article that person has, she can then infect damage to that person by doing it to herself first. Kind of like American Horror Story Coven, if they actually did anything with that idea. Right. So, I imagine there's a lot of interesting stuff in there about self-harm that you'll probably get to in your pitch. Mine is coming from a slightly different angle. Um, I think that um, uh, Gabby is here because Sunit is magic weapon basically is what she's saying there's like a powerful living weapon here and everyone is immediately like oh no that's neat we have to like hide her and um it becomes a game of like keeping like tabs on gabby and like pretending to work with her while throwing her off the trail of sunit and obviously you have like this final confrontation um uh, and i think like the the thing that we're working through here emotionally with sunit is i think that um, uh, the problem that Sunit will be grappling with here is that basically she's like, she is a magical being, but all of her magic is geared towards uh, like violence basically, right? Is she can do things to other people by doing those things to herself the way that it is often framed, uh, an inherently destructive ability. I'm thinking about like the shot in, um, Avengers age of Ultron when, Thor, like, steps on a little Lego house and quietly, ashamedly sweeps it under the rug at Hawkeye's place because, like, he's dealing with the idea that, like, all of Thor's powers are, like, inherently destructive powers, which is an interesting theme that never gets explored. But I'm coming back here and I'm exploring it here with Sunit is that Sunit is inherently, like, doing a destructive thing with her abilities. Um, And so she has to, like, grapple with that and, like, ultimately try to find a way to throw this monster hunter off of her trail without doing something destructive to her. In the end, what happens, because I love a, I love a, a, a finale that's just two characters sitting in a room talking, Sunit is, like, comes to some revelation where she's like, oh, you know what? You know, Gabby, your whole thing isn't different. Like, I've been on the back foot this whole time because you came into my place looking for me. But your whole approach here is also just, it's carceral. It's destructive. You're here to try to lock me away, to try to do violence on me. You're not better than I am. You don't get to claim the high ground. And she goes in to, like, try to covertly make that argument, be like, you know, you're not better than whoever this mysterious person is you're looking for. And then I think that Gabby unexpectedly has a response to that, has a response of, like, you know, I actually am not here to lock this person away. I'm here because I'm interested for some other reason. This isn't a carceral approach. And I think what Sunit does in response to that um, is, like, I think maybe she's gotten some of Gabby's hair or something, like, at some point in this episode and made a conscious choice to not do anything violent with it. And so instead what she does at this point, having gotten like this like moment of connection with Gabby, is 
she does some pleasant touch. She, you know, um, she runs her fingers through her hair. She, like, maybe we establish that Gabby has, like, a, has, like, a, a, a crick in her, like, back that she can't quite reach. But Sunit can reach the crack of her back, and she, like, scratches it or rubs it in a way that, like, helps relieve the pain, and Gabby, like, feels better. And we come to understand that Sunit has, like, the ability to use this power, um, in a way that isn't just destructive. And she was, just, like people were putting her in that box and she was thinking of it that way, but that was like a lack of creativity on everyone's part. Um, that's my, that's my concept for that episode. Oh, it's a good fucking concept. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna hype you up for a second because I don't explore self-harm in my Sinead pitch and it's much more top up than oh, the great. bottom I usually good come from. Us. So I'm, I'm very happy you did that. Uh, but you like accidentally <laughs> like saw through to the heart of Gabby's character because her thing was like she was a cop who was undercover pretending to be a protester and she threw the first rock so that the cops competed at the protesters and like her whole thing is like Damn. feeling like she was just someone who threw people away and was a jerk and left the force because of that and has struggles with does she harm people or does she help people so you really found that and you found a new thing to cover with Gabby that I with the Sunit that I don't so that good fucking good Good job. A plus. You did it. High five us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now I'll do uh, my Sunit episode. And as I have established before, if there's a Wendigo stuff, we can occasionally leave Chicago. And so this episode takes place in DR, baby. And that's why I brought up uh, Dominican saying no black, because this was originally going to come after the Burt one. But it's fine that it didn't. I just think I wanted to bring up. But I want to start by saying there's an episode of no here's where i want to start i once had a conversation with taylor wherein taylor said and i'm going to paraphrase but taylor said that the only pause the only time i've seen a black character have a positive relationship with voodoo in media is american horror story coven and that's just sad so the other place i want to start is there's an episode of young justice phantoms which is a phenomenal season and kind of has the perfect ending for that show but there's a character violet who is the composite of a dead muslim girl and a dead mother box and the reanimated thing is violet and violet has access to like both of these memories and knows that like the muslim faith meant a lot to the person who existed beforehand but doesn't actually know what it means to her and so like the episode is just Violet going to that person's mom and that mom just like explains the basic tenets of the Muslim faith. And I was like, that's fucking rad. <laughs> what a cool thing to have and to happen. And I want that for voodoo because voodoo's cool and a legitimate religious practice and ex experience is the wrong word, but it's a legitimate religious practice and spiritual meaning that can offer you a ways to navigate life that I think is meaningful and does not get to be played in most media. The only thing most people know about voodoo is voodoo dolls, and that's, for the most part, a racist Hollywood invention. Um, and so the fact that Sunit is that, like, she has a very complicated relationship to her own relationship to voodoo being a human voodoo doll, um, and the villain of the week is La Guapa, who is a Dominican cryptid. And for those who don't know, it's like this three-foot 
naked woman with like backwards feet who lures men away to have sex with and kill them. And since it's an episode I am writing, I think it's a Bert and Sunit episode. And someone gets to be like, yeah, when they're explaining how Lassie Guapa works, they get, yeah, like she tempts men. And either Bert or Sunit gets to be like, yo, if you're like three foot tall, you are not tempting men. The man is being a fucking predator in that situation because accurate. And there's just like a lot to say about Lassie Guapa. Sort of like romanticizing indigenous things. The the big thing I want to get to with is like La Guapa has turned into like a verb for anti-colonial action in DR. If you want to know more about this, check out uh, Monstrous Podcast. They did a La, La Mantras. They did a whole episode on La Guapa. It's pretty cool. Um, but I think if you have a cryptid who is about like this like appropriation uh, yeah appropriation of indigenous customs and like uh beauty standards and it gets turned into something that is about like and it gets reappropriated again to mean like anti-colonial action then there's like something fascinating with Sunit who is herself like a Hollywood product of a thing that means a lot to a certain sect of people I just want to show that says that voodoo is cool and good and it's about individualized lived experience and how that is reflected in the ever-shifting pantheon and how, like, what you want out of life, the loa you pray to will be different and the mojo bag you make will be different. What your goals change as a person, so the candles you light will be different. I just want all of that explored and talked about in a show, just very didactic, being like, voodoo is cool <laughs> and we're doing a Dominican cryptid and that's, that's my Sunit episode. That's all you need. <laughs> it is cool. And that is, that's a good episode. Oh, thank you. And you said you were out, so I go to my Alamrick one? Yeah, you go to your Alamrick. Okay, ho hopefully this one is short, uh, but it is a tried and true episode of fiction. It's how, <laughs> it's how the 3D Clone Wars ends, unfortunately. It's, there's an episode of Batman does it, but it is, you are presented your perfect idealistic world and then you have to let it go and the final act. And so my idea is that uh, we haven't talked a lot about lighting for the show because it's a very loose pitch. But I imagine it's, you know, like low sapia tones. If there is horror, if there is color, like it's very stark. Blood red, sickly yellows. Think season one Daredevil. This episode is lit in like goddamn seventh heaven, like Gilmore Girls. It's bright and happy and it's in this beautiful irish castle it's j like it's just a happy family life almrick gets to hang out with her sisters and we see carnilla in my mind for the first time and she's played by the actress who played catelyn stark from game of thrones who i was like do i really like this casting and then i thought about like the nurturing motherly just like the, uh, there's a word for like that exact thing I just said that I can't think of right now. But, you know, how nurturing and caring she can be. But that just look of wordless like hate and almost abuse she gives to Jon Snow on that tower. It's like, yeah, she'd be perfect as Carnilla. I stand by that fucking casting. And of course, that gets interrupted when her current friends and family like open the door and then every time like you gotta wake up this isn't real oh the camera gets all shaky and stuff and slowly over the course of the episode like the lights aren't working and the water is like gunk and spraying weird and the house is slowly dilapidated until the last respite is 
Al's room and has like fully regressed under the blanket, like hiding away from the monster. And she's like, no, like, every, like I have a mom who loves me and I have sisters and a family and everything's cool. What, what do you mean? And in my brain, Bird is kind of like the heart and soul and kind of the most emotionally intelligent, but doesn't show it all that often. So Bert, like he pushes everyone aside, he steps forward and he just go. And when I, when I was like, no, my mom loves me. Like, like it's, it's simple and I get it. Uh, Bert just goes, what did she name you? And uh, there's, they don't say it out loud. It's all face acting, the slow realization that my name is just my mom's name backwards, Alamrick. I'm just a direct reflection of her. I'm not a real person. And as the clarity and sadness and pain like washes over her face, so too does the the final restages of this idealized castle that never was slowly evaporate to reveal we've been in the dilapidated Carnilla castle the whole time. And it's a we the monster of the week was like some uh whatever the Greek god of dreams and nightmares is that they dealt with to get Al out of the dreamscape. I uh I thought this show was supposed to be bad. <laughs> I really think we're fucking up the assignment on this one. <laughs> Here's the thing. Sometimes you fuck up the assignment and it's kind of cool. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I, I, I like this so much more than I thought I would when I came up with this idea half awake at 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, now do you have like any things to say before I read out the first draft ending that I wrote? Man, this episode is so long already. Just, just do it. <laughs> All right, cool. It's a starless night, an interminable darkness that would rattle the hearts of mere mortals, but not our heroes, because as we all know, the night belongs to monsters. Our cavalcade of creatures and oddities are strewn about their backyard, having celebrated the defeat of their year-long foe, Yaga Baba, the only light being provided by a large bonfire. As the camera pans from right to left, the dialogue is inaudible. It is being drowned out by the snap, crackle, pop, and occasional tumbling of timber from the bonfire. Bert and Sunit are playfully roughhousing Lake, despite their superior French palate, is enjoying one of Bert's world-famous s'mores. The secret ingredient is a homemade meringue. And Amara is reassuring her dad that this is not some crazy teen sex party, but is just a small collection of the a group of adult monsters she's saved the world with, which puts him at ease because at least he's met these people. The camera does a full 180 to focus in on Alamric, having entombed herself in a blanket, and Arthur rubbing his hands together and placing them near the bonfire to no avail. Alamric offers Arthur a spot in her blanket fortress, and Alamric, being a vampire, knows this will provide no body heat, but has come to understand that this is an emotional gesture that Arthur will appreciate. A twinge of awkward tension wistfully dances in the air until it is broken by Alamric. You know, it's funny, before I met you guys, I was content to wallow away in my mom's dreary castle, blood wine drunk until the last star was swallowed by the darkness, but now I... Her voice is cut off by a dreary hum. Arthur grabs his ear, but the ringing only grows. A sound pulsing, pounding, burrowing its way into his skull. The editing becomes choppy. Frames are lost. The camera moves from a steady tripod to a shaky handheld. We are now in Arthur's POV, and we can only catch glimpses of the catastrophe that is about to unfold. 
we see a cross placed on Almeric's chest. Her veins run black, like the thorns of a dying rose desperately trying to escape its fate. Her eyes roll to the back of her head, and from her mouth pours a viscous, vile, black fluid. Bert, in a half-transformed state, hurls Sunit with enough force to dislocate his own shoulder. A man in what appears to be SWAT gear attempts to fire a net at an already airborne lake, however his aim is thrown off at the last minute by Amara. Both Bert and Amara put up a valiant fight but are eventually overpowered. As the rain slowly dies down, we hear a man, dressed in what appears to be a bishop's regalia, chanting the final verse of his ill prayer in a long dead language. As the prayer is finished, another man throws a Molotov cocktail, however, in a strangely ornate bottle, through the window. The house is now ablaze. The wood framing snaps and creaks in a scream of anguish. The spirit of David is ripped from the house. The structure that was once the home to our heroes caves in on itself. This is no home, only an inferno. The camera returns to a stable position as we leave Arthur's POV. Arthur, distraught and defeated, can only lie on his knees in confusion. He is shown small and meek in the background of the frame. As a man in all black steps forward, dominating the foreground of the frame, and with a voice that is eerily similar to that of Russell Crowe from 2017's The Mummy, he says, You did great work, Agent. I bet they never suspected you for an instant. Welcome back to Prodigium. He extends a hand to Arthur. Arthur lets out a what the fuck? But is cut off by an acoustic cover of the title theme, Burning of a Sinner by Witch Hunter General. It's an acoustic cover to let you know that the events you just witnessed are in fact sad. However, after what would have been the first chorus gives way to silence as the remaining credits fall. A final title card promises that our heroes will be back for a season two, but alas, that would never come to pass as our show was canceled after only one season. Wait, do you know what happens? What happened there? No, my my headcanon is just like ah, we got one season. So here's the rub, everybody. <laughs> Dalton, Dylan, if you liked any of what you heard, then season that you could pick up and use some of these characters. And if not, then oh, you're such a simp. Oh, <laughs> you want them to notice you so bad. <laughs> I am, but if you guys don't. Then season two gets picked up, and this rolls over and becomes part of our dark universe. <laughs> oh, that's it. Do you want to do fun facts? I have mine. Uh, sure. Go for it. Okay, here's my fun fact, is that I forgot to say that my Almeric episode is like the penultimate episode, right? The one before the finale. And it is written and directed by Mike Flanagan, who does a bunch of oh, Stephen shit. King adaptations that are really good, and he did Midnight Mass, which is a goddamn wonderful show. Uh, but he wrote and directed that episode, and it becomes a fan favorite. And there's a bunch of talk about how like he would have become a producer for a season two, and everyone's upset about it because he had arguably the best episode, and then it didn't get picked up. And another thing that gets brought up is whenever the actors for Arthur and Lance talk about the show at panels and shit, they're like, yeah, no, there was going to be like a relationship that was explored like definitively in a season two, but ah... Uh, Funding and ratings, burp, burp. And I'll just vamp what you think for a second. I, this is such a, I am not confident halfway through this episode, and then we get to the end and I'm like, shit, this is good. It's good, actually. 
And I can already like smell it in my head that if I edit this one, there's going to be a lot of me. Re I'm going to re-record me reading that ending. I can just sense it right now. Oh, I can already hear the sound effects. Uh. <laughs> okay, so you know how the CW always has like a bunch of pop music all the time? Like at strange moments in the show, um, they like nonstop needle drops. Mm. So here's my thought. Um, I think my fun fact is that for the like, you can have whatever you want for the theme song, but for like the in show needle drops, they use like all like 1940s, 50s music <laughs> to like evoke the original Universal Monster Movies era. Oh, that's a good idea. It's like all it's all 40s music. Oh, I wish this show was real. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, is it sign off time? This is a long one. It's sign off time. It's a long one. Thank you for sticking with us, folks. Um, Thank you. Uh, if you enjoyed everyone. it this far, please make sure to drop us a comment, drop us a review, and go ahead uh, go ahead and check out our merch store where we'll be selling DVDs of the Mummy. <laughs> legal tender and, <laughs> and, and join us next week when Amber tries in vain to get us to talk about Gem and the Holograms but we actually talk about oh um, we're going to be having a special guest star um, to talk about Halo ooh a Halo episode yeah that'll be neither of us talking episode because we're going to get Chloe to talk for us Yep, I'm. I got nothing. We got nothing to say about Halo. <laughs> other than there's like a good Karen Travis trilogy. <laughs> right, thank you so much, everyone. Please rate, review us on your podcast app of choice because that helps the show. I would actually really like for number to go up. I feel bad about it constantly. Please do it. Please, it's not ironic. Please, <laughs> please do it. I'm so desperate. I'm so. Desperate I definitely, for I definitely did it as like a as like a like comment and check out our merch store where we're selling dumb thing as the thing so that I could tell people to to like and comment at the end of every episode. <laughs> All right, we love you. Thank you. Uh, goodbye. Seriously, thank you for sticking with us. Um, spooky goodbye. Spooky bye.